The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor at Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn more about investing in bonds. Typically, we start the week with a call on stocks, but the bond market merits attention too as the Fed begins hiking interest rates. I've got two great guests today to talk about the outlook for fixed income investing. Steve Booth is a manager of credit strategies at T. Rowe Price, and Barron's associate editor, Andrew Barry, is the author of a recent Barron story, What to Buy Following an Epic Bond Route. Welcome, Steve and Andrew. I'm so glad you could join me on Barron's Live today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So, Steve, I'm going to start with you. To understand the outlook for fixed income investing, we have to talk first about inflation. It sets sure. the scene, so to speak. Inflation has been running at a 40-year high, around 8.5%, I believe, and the Fed has been chasing it, trying to rein it in. What is your inflation outlook? Do you think it's going higher from here? Do you think the Fed will succeed? What's the What's ahead for us? Sure, I can. Um, I, it's obviously um, an important question and a question that we get a lot. And I'll I'll take a shot here at answering it because it's it, it's been a tough one to get. Let, let's be honest. I think a lot of people that you know thought inflation would begin to roll over at some point last year were were, were incorrect. Uh, and there's been a, a stickiness. That's 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 true. Although I think there might be some some caveats to the to, to the to the team transitory narrative that might be worth discussing. Uh, well, well, look, let's. Um, I think my view here is that we are in a topping process. Uh, when I think about, and let's focus on sort of realized spot CPI as our as our marker for inflation. I know folks have different definitions and, and different measures of inflation. Let's just focus on CPI for 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 a base case of analysis here. Uh, I would suggest that we are entering a topping process, and, and I think there's there's three data points or three components that I that I would point to. One is just it's just quite simply the base effect math. Uh, the comps are going to get increasingly tougher as the year progresses. Um, and, and particularly if you if you just simply focus on the energy component of, of CPI, or specifically the oil component of, of CPI, uh, just simply to hold its contribution to the current rate of change, uh, you need 150, 160, 170-ish oil as, as, as the year progresses. Not impossible. Certainly not saying that, uh, given some of the supply side dynamics, um, you can't rule it out. But but I would suggest that it's it's going to be increasingly difficult uh, to, to to maintain the current pace or the current rate of change of the contribution from energy as we as we move forward here. Uh, the second component I'll point to is just this this massive shift in, in consumption patterns that that we've seen over the last two years, uh, which has contributed to to rather large and outside goods inflation. Uh, I, I would suggest that will start to to unwind over the next several quarters. Uh, it, it's just not a, a sustainable trend. So, so as we we mean revert back to a more balanced goods versus consumption goods versus services consumption patterns, 
I would suggest that that would put some pressure on, on, on goods, goods inflation and, and introduce more of a, a disinflationary trend. And, and, and lastly, you know, and at the risk of, of frankly, just oversimplifying the complex, I, I think the simple reality here is that the, 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 there's an old saying that, that particularly if you follow commodity markets for an extended period of time, uh, the reality is the cure for high prices is high prices. And, and I've heard what that exactly do, exactly. And so what do we mean by that? And, and so there are there are two dynamics I would point to that sort of make that that sort of catchphrase uh, you know true over time. Is one is that at some point uh, you go are going to elicit a supply side response. And again, I would point to the energy markets, and we're starting to see some evidence that is materializing. As you see, rig counts uh, tick higher, production ticks higher, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and also just good old fashioned demand destruction. Uh, there is a limit to how high prices can move higher. Uh, ultimately, this, this reduces demand, reduces consumption, and ultimately puts, pu puts some pressure on, on prices. Uh, so so the, the point here is that I, I would suggest that we are entering, potentially enter, entering more of a disinflationary trend. To be clear, that is not deflation. That does not mean lower prices. Uh, that just means a, a deceleration in, in, in the rate of change as the year progresses. So in addition to raising rates, the Fed is going to be trimming its balance sheet. It's reportedly aiming to trim a mere $95 billion a month as mortgages and bond holdings roll off. We'll get more details on the plan when the Fed meets again in May. Steve, tell me, how will the markets register this policy change, which is really fairly substantial? Yeah, I think that's uh, it's a good question and, and a good point. I would um, maybe let's let, let's take a step back and, and sort of think about exactly what what balance sheet roll off means, or, or exactly what are the mechanics behind what is often referred to as quantitative tightening. Uh, the, the the inverse of quantitative tightening obviously is quantitative easing, and and all a quantitative easing is at the end of the day is a liquidity exercise. Uh, it is an asset swap that ultimately. Uh, allows private sector portfolios to become more liquid. You are swapping your treasury bonds and mortgages for more liquid deposits. Uh, this is a more liquid instrument and allows you to uh, bid on other risky assets. Uh, so QT at, at, at roughly a 95 billion-ish a month pace, uh, we're going to unwind some of those abundant liquidity conditions. So, so I would view it as a, a, a marginal reduction in, in the overall uh, environment for liquidity. Um, on the margin, in isolation, probably not all that meaningful, right? We're talking about $95 billion a month um, in, in an environment where the Fed balance sheet has been rapidly growing. Um, in isolation, sounds, you know, rather, okay, small drop in a rather large ocean. Uh, what I would suggest- things in isolation in the markets. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. You can you can rarely, if ever, view these things in isolation. And and, and my concern here, um, and something that I think maybe folks need to be a bit mindful of, is that the the environment for liquidity, liquidity conditions, particularly across financial assets, has already started to deteriorate. Um, you know, we we see it in the price action in credit markets. Uh, you see it in the treasury markets recently. Some of the real gappy yield action that's that's taken place you know we saw you know the the, the curve you know invert a few weeks ago and then immediately re-steep re -steepen in, in rather violent behavior um, even in the equity market you know you, you look at you know the depth and breadth of bid ask across some of the more liquid products uh, futures for example 
liquidity conditions have already begun to to deteriorate. So uh, I do have some concerns that uh, as we progress with balance sheet unwind, as we entering enter a more sort of tightening monetary policy regime, uh, those liquidity conditions take another step down, uh, and, and that could introduce you know, additional headwinds to, to, to risk assets. Just what we need, right? <laughs> so, I'm Andrew, here to, I wanna... I'm here to observe. I, I, okay. <laughs> I like that. Andrew, I want to bring you into the conversation. The bond market is already anticipating higher rates. Just this morning, the 10-year yield top 2.8%, which is pretty amazing considering how low it's been over the course of the COVID pandemic. Can you explain to listeners, please, why market insiders focus so closely on the 10-year and what the current yield forecast is? Well, investors focus on the 10-year because it's a, it's a benchmark rate for, for treasury borrowing. It also is what mortgage rates effectively get set off of. So it's important for the housing market as well. The 10-year treasury rates up from to about 2.8%, which is about a three-year high, up from about 1.5% at the start of the year. So it's been a, vi- a pretty big sell-off. People are anticipating higher short rates, but I would say that the markets are discounting much lower inflation by the end of the year. That's why people are willing to pay a get 2.8% or accept 2.8% on a 10-year treasury. I mean, the expectation is there in core inflation could be running at maybe 3% or 4% by the end of this year. That's why people are willing to buy treasuries at current levels. Otherwise, you probably should stay away from them. And if you see inflation coming down, yields going up, I know it's the bond market call, but what does it mean for the stock market? Tell us about that, Andrew. Well, I mean, I, I think that the stock market is taking a, an optimistic view that basically the Fed will get inflation under control and that treasury rates and other market interest rates are not going to be headed up much higher, even as the Fed raises short rates. I mean, the view is that longer term rates, 10 year rates, 30 year rates, mortgage rates are not going to be rising all that much more. I think that's the basis for, you know, whatever current optimism you have in the stock market. The stock market's down five-ish, six percent this year. And actually, bonds have done a lot worse. I mean, long-term bonds are down about 15 percent in many cases. So actually, bonds have done much worse than than stocks this year. So the bull market lives in stocks. Mm -hmm. So we should remind listeners that bonds, bond prices and bond yields move inversely to each other. So as the yields go up, prices go down. Steve, Andrew wrote about the epic bond market route. You've called it a bloodbath in bonds. As Andrew just mentioned, bond prices have really sold off. So pick your metaphor, but these have not been good times for fixed income investors. Where do you see opportunity in the fixed income market now? If an investor does want to dabble in bonds or dive in head first, where would you go? Sure. Well, I, uh, I I think you you summed it up appropriately with your in, in, intru, introductory comments. With uh, it was a route, um, and and I think what what made it particularly painful is that there there really were not too many places to hide. Um, what I would suggest here, however, is is it's it is a bit safer to move back into the waters, right? Like like we have priced in a high degree of of tightening into the market. Um, you know, we have, you know, if you buy into my view that, that we are entering uh, a bit more of a, of a def- disinflationary trend as, as the relative price adjustments continue to work themselves out, um, this would suggest that, that yeah, I, I would argue that, that, that some longer data treasuries, longer data duration 
begins to look inter interesting again as a diversifier. I think what's been, been very painful for for market participants is not just necessarily the the bond route, quote unquote, uh, but the correlation effects, right? Like it it's, it has not provided that that diversification benefit you tend to expect uh, when stocks you know, tend to struggle. Um, that's been that's been a challenge. I would argue, or I would suggest that that we may be entering a regime where that where those correlation benefits. Uh, start to work again. Uh, and again, I think you have to uh, believe that that we are entering a period of, of a bit more disinflation as opposed to inflation uh, as those relative cost adjustments uh, sort of make their way through the economy. Uh, so, so that's maybe one idea I would throw out there. I would also suggest, uh, particularly if you are um, keen against hedging uh, or, or do want to protect against higher rates, particularly in the front end, there are variable rate products uh, that increasingly look interesting. Uh, um, so in the levered loan market, for example, uh, you, you do have to take incremental credit risk. These are generally high rated instruments. Um, you are sacrificing a degree of liquidity. The levered loan market um, tends to be a less liquid asset class. Uh, but for variable rate protection, investing in that five, five and a half percent zip code, I'd say that's that's pretty attractive here, particularly relative to to, to, to recent history. Um, another component of the credit market I would also throw out there is just short dated, high quality investment grade bonds. You can buy three or four a share paper at, at three and a half percent. Again, um, you know, you're not going to uh, retire on that type of income stream, but relative to recent history and relative to the forward outlook, I, I'd suggest that's increasingly attractive. So, uh, so it's getting a bit more safer to, 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 to step back into the, into the bond market here. So just to sum up for listeners, you talked about long dated duration, variable rate products like levered loans and high quality investment grade bonds. I just want to highlight again that the the, the longer dated duration components, I would view that as a as a diversifier to to a larger risky asset. Right. Um, the point there is that the correlation benefits, uh, I would argue, uh, which have been very painful for your typical 60-40 investor or, or your typical you know, stock bond allocation. Uh, I would suggest that we're likely entering a regime where, where those benefits start to reassert themselves. Tell me about corporate bonds. What do you see in terms of the credit markets and credit quality? Credit quality remains fairly robust. Um, we're, we're coming off of an environment where you know, average credit metrics were extremely strong. Um, balance sheets are in relatively good shape. Uh, the issues with valuations in the credit market year to date, I would argue, is more uh, technical and liquidity related. Uh, liquidity conditions, as I alluded to earlier in the call, uh, have continued to deteriorate. And that has put a, a fair amount of pressure on, on valuations from both, you know, from a, obviously from a yield perspective, but also from a credit spread perspective. So spreads are wider, and this is primarily a function of the market um, introducing a, a larger liquidity premium. I don't want to be dismissive of overall credit risk or overall credit quality while we remain robust. Um, there is some deterioration taken on the margin. Um, interest expense is higher. This will weigh on profitability. Uh, I would argue that we're entering a period where corporate profits will, uh, will increasingly look challenged for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, you have higher input costs, uh, potentially decelerating revenue, um, extremely difficult comps as we make our way through through the second quarter. Um, so, so overall credit quality, while we're robust, um, I would not be complacent about it. There, there are areas where we will start to see some stress and we will start to see some, some potentially fraying uh, around the edges. Good point. 
So, Andrew, I want to move on to your favorite bond bond areas, but I want to remind listeners before we do, we will take questions at the end of the call. We've got a few. Please add to the list. We're happy to answer your questions. So, Andrew, your story argued that bonds also are starting to look attractive given current yields. They're actually pretty decent these days. You covered a range of opportunities from munis to junk bonds to preferred stocks and many more categories. Tell me about some of your favorite fixed income categories now. Basically, my view has been that bonds are looking better than they were at the start of the year when they look pretty poor, but they're not great right now. So I think people, as Steve said, should should start reconsidering bonds. If you didn't have a 60-40 portfolio, which is like, which is like 60% stocks, 40% bonds, and you were afraid of the bond component at the start of the year, or maybe you had more in equities or more in cash, it might be worth considering bonds. I mean, I would focus on muni bonds, which are always popular with individuals because of the tax benefits. There's been a very sharp sell-off in the muni bond market, as great or even more so than in the treasury area. Now you can get about 2.5% on top-grade 10-year muni bonds. It's up from about 1% at the start of the year. And long-term muni bonds are yielding you know, 3.5%, 4% right now, which is on par or I mean, is actually, it's actually more than you can get in the treasury market. Plus, you get the tax benefits. And ratios have moved out. And so munis are actually a pretty good alternative to treasuries right now, following what's been a very sharp sell-off. So munis is an, is an area that... I might highlight preferred stock, which offers some uh, tax benefits on the dividends. Rates on pre bank preferreds, which are the most commonly issued preferred stocks, are up to 5% plus from about 4% at the start of the year. So those are looking better right now. Even convertibles, which basically uh, offer their, their hybrid instruments, which are kind of stock bond hybrids, getting about 2% now on convertibles. So that's more of an equity-like area. So those are areas I would highlight right now. What about preferreds, preferred stocks, that is? Well, I, I mentioned preferreds. Okay. I mean, they're yielding about 5% right now. Bank preferreds, 5% plus, up from around 4%. Dividends are tax advantage, like dividends on common stocks, at least in most cases. If you want a really high-yielding preferred, there's one from Curate Retail, which yields over 10%. That's John Malone's company. The company is levered, and there have been some issues with the company, but the, the preferred yields over 10%, which is really a a very junk-like yield right now. So uh, preferreds are looking more interesting right now. I mean, the, if rates do rise more, I mean, they, they, they probably will get hit, but you're starting to get paid more to take the risk in preferred right now. That's fair enough. What about junk bonds? Anything appealing there? I mean, junk bonds, I think are yielding around, I mean, five, 6%. I mean, I think, you know, credit quality in, in the in the junk bond market is reasonably good. I think we, we might point out that Twitter, which has been in the news, is a junk bond issuer. It's a high-grade junk issuer, just below investment grade. Its bonds yield around 5% now. I mean, the risk there is that you have basically a, a leveraged buyout of sorts, or, or a lot of debt is taken on as part of any potential buyout of Twitter. So, I mean, that's the risk there. And those bonds are now yielding around 5%. Well, I thought we were going to get through a Barron's Live call finally without discussing Twitter and Elon Musk. But you tripped me up there, Andrew. I'm glad you mentioned that, though. So we've had a lot of conversations today about the 60-40 portfolio, a lot of mentions of it at any rate. And we've got some listener questions about it. Investors have needed bonds as ballast in a portfolio, especially given today's high stock prices. Steve, how do you think about the 60-40 portfolio. Is it really doomed, as some people say, or does it have a long life ahead of it? 
Yeah, I um, I, I, I'm not going to say it's 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 doomed. Um, maybe it's um, it's a bit of a, a walking wounded. Uh, might be a, a fairer characterization. Uh, look, maybe just a, a simple high level observation. I think it's going to be incredibly difficult for for any number of financial assets or any number of financial products to to repeat historical returns like they have over the last. Andrew, have we lost Steve? Hello, are you with me, Lauren? Yes, we seem to have lost Steve. We will have him dial in again. So give me your views on the 60-40 portfolio. Well, you know, the 60-40, you know, makes sense. I mean, to have 40% bonds, it's really the key thing is the yield levels and what, what rate level are you buying bonds at? At the start of the year, bonds yielded very little and they offered you very little protection against inflation or, and so it really wasn't a particularly good um, asset mix to have. But as bond yields rise, the 60-40 you know, portfolio begins to look better. And investors may want to consider, I mean, having more in bonds and maybe something closer to 40% in bonds. Another alternative is to hold cash as well. People, Some people have like 60% stocks, 20% bonds, 20% cash. I mean, cash could be yielding 2.5-3% by the end of this year. So Cash, is, which, which has been trash, which has been essentially yielding zero for the last couple of years, is not going to be a bad alternative to uh, many fixed income instruments come, come the end of this year. If the, basically the Fed moves forward and raises rates as much as the markets are anticipating. I feel like we should have a what's ahead in cash barons live call one of these days, but I'm glad you covered that. Let's go to some listener questions. I had a bunch for Steve and a bunch for you, but you may be handling them all, Andrew. I think you're up to it. Linda asks about different bond funds. Are there any you can recommend either ETFs or managed bond funds that express some views you've had? Well, you know, I mean, you, you can basically buy, um, it depends on kind of what you like. I mean, I'm reluctant to, to recommend specific actively managed bond funds. I mean, T. Rowe Price manages a number of them, but you know, there are a lot of ETFs, there are treasury ETFs, depending on whatever maturity you want, whether it be short, medium, long-term, in the, in, the, in the muni bond market, it's the same thing. You have preferred stock ETFs, you have convertible bond ETFs. I mean, there are many ways to basically get sector exposure in the bond market via ETFs. And many people are choosing that rather than actively manage funds, even though there's some, some, there's some real benefits to active management and bonds, because I think active managers can really add some value in terms of security selection and bond selection. So I think in general, um, I think most um, portfolio managers would argue that you can really add more value more easily in the bond market than you can in the, uh, than in the stock market. Interesting. You know, um, Anthony asks an interesting question. In light of the ongoing rout in long-term U.S. Treasury bonds, would it be wise for investors to consider inverse bond ETFs? Well, I mean, I mean, those are risky. I mean, but um, if you think if you think rates are going higher, the inverse bond ETFs, I mean, should move higher. So if you think Treasury rates still don't reflect what you think inflation is going to be and the quantitative tightening which the Fed is about to embark on. I mean, those make sense. I mean, they're they're um, they're they're somewhat speculative, but uh, if you think Treasury rates are going from three to four percent, I mean, inverse, I mean, Treasury ETF should do well. What about? I, I, I apologize. I, I believe I cut off for a moment. Um, Welcome back. <laughs> thank you. I, I I don't know how much of my eloquent uh, defense of the walking wounded sixty forty everyone heard, but um, I, I I have returned. 
Okay. <laughs> Steve, I'm so glad you're back. You're just in time for the next question. Okay. Howard asks, you've described, we're, we're up to listener questions now. You've described a relatively sanguine outcome for inflation. What's the argument for increasing inflation and in interest rates? In other words, the counter argument to the one you gave. So, so I think the, the, the two easy counter arguments are, or nothing's easy. That's, that's probably a poor choice of words. One is on, is on the supply side, like, like clearly um, supply side frictions and supply side dynamics can, can easily deteriorate from here and increasingly putting pressure on, on, on prices uh, that would, would push up uh, reported spot realized CPI. Uh, I would argue there's a limit to that dynamic as, as I alluded to earlier, the, you know, the cure for high prices is ultimately high prices, and there's, there's sort of a, a threshold to that. Uh, but that is that is one area where where I do have uh, concerns around the more sanguine view is that we, we could easily get you know, additional supply side frictions and constraints that could push up, uh, pr introduce price pressures. On the other side, I, I would argue it would have to be on the fiscal side, so on the demand side. Um, right now, as we speak, there, there is a rather significant uh, rolling off of last year's fiscal stimulus. Um, I, I would suggest that the, the sort of the, the demand side inflation or the, you know, the, the, the extent that fiscal policy has supported higher prices over the last two years, uh, that in my framework is introducing a headwind. Um, if there's a rollback of that, of that fiscal rolloff or, or if additional fiscal stimulus is introduced, uh, that absolutely will put additional uh, pressure on prices. Okay, Hal asks the question, Moving back to the bond market and away from the macro outlook, where do you place your bet these days on the two-year, the five-year, the 10-year, or the 30-year treasury? It depends on your objective. Um, if your objective is diversification, I would I would look out, out, out the curve, uh, the 10 to 30-year part of the curve. Uh, that's where you'll, you'll, you'll get a degree of convexity or, or a degree of, uh, of sort of price appreciation uh, if, if we're in an environment where uh, you know, stocks were to continue to fall from here or read to enter a recession. Uh, if you're simply looking for income, I, I would suggest that that shorter dated uh, credit is is not a bad place to, to, to hide out here. All right. So we have a question for you, Andrew, from Lee. It's a little bit off topic, but I think worth asking. He knows that you cover Warren Buffett. You're probably the best Buffettologist in the business. Among your among your many duties, he wants to know, do you see any big announcements coming from Warren at the coming annual meeting? Any surprises ahead? And I'm going to throw in anything that Buffett has said on bonds that we ought to be aware of. Well, I mean, I don't think there are going to be, going to be any big news announcements or any news coming out of the annual meeting, which is on April 30th, which is essentially in about two weeks from now. Buffett has never liked bonds. He basically hates bonds. It'll be interesting to see whether Berkshire Hathaway does begin to increase its bond exposure as uh, interest rates rise. Berkshire is basically has a, what they call a giant barbell strategy. They own a $350 billion of equities. They have about $150 billion in cash and only about $20 billion of bonds. It's unlike any company in the insurance business, given its asset allocation mix. Most insurers have most of their assets in bonds. Buffett does not think the risk award has been good, and he's been right to essentially be in stocks and be in, and be in cash. So it will be interesting to see whether Berkshire begins to increase its asset allocation toward bonds, given higher rates. 
That's a good answer. Thank you. I'm glad I'm gladly asked the question. So, Andrew, as long as you have the microphone, Hal has another question. Are blue chip large cap high dividend stocks a better bet now than any fixed income investment? You know, you can make an argument that, you know, stocks are a better place for income than bonds right now. You can easily now get 3% yields on a wide variety of, you know, blue chip equities right now or close to 3%. I mean, many banks uh, stocks are now yielding 3% right now. UPS yields 3%. I mean, you have mid two mid 2% yields on stocks like Home Depot. So, I mean, as as the stock market is pulled back in some areas, you mean you're 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 getting some opportunities. I mean, AT&T which just spun off um it's Warner uh, Media business the shareholders yields almost 6%. Verizon's uh about a four to four to five percent yield right now. Utilities are in the two to three percent area, so you can actually get you know bond still get bond like yields in the equity market, and you get the prospect of higher dividends down the road, hopefully, plus some appreciation in the stock. So I think that from many people have shifted toward uh, looking to, to income from the bond market to stock market, and I, and I think that may continue. That's a good list of companies and a good list of yields there. You mentioned utility stocks, and Lee had a question for Steve. Do you see utility stocks as bond equivalents for the most part? He knows that utility stocks as a whole have been doing well lately. Uh, sure. So I, I, I would not um, equate dividend stocks in general or utilities specifically to as, as bond proxies. Uh, again, I, I go back to the, the real benefit to, to owning bonds in a broader portfolio, and that's that diversification benefit. And the reality is, as, as defensive as utility sector has traded year to date, and as defensive as dividend stocks tend to, to trade, uh, the real value to that diversification is that price appreciation when stocks fall or when recession condi recessionary conditions increase, you, know, you have that increased collateral value within your portfolios that allows you to buy the dip. Um, I would suggest that, that dividend stocks in general probably won't provide that type of protection. Uh, on a relative basis, sure. Um, but on an absolute basis, uh, I think the, the diversification properties of, of, of longer duration assets will, will uh, prove dividends, pay dividends. <laughs> Lauren, I, I would add that the utility sector of the stock market has been one of the strongest areas this year in the stock market. And many people think that that could be a bullish sign for bonds because utilities, which are often interest rate sensitive, are bucking the um, upward movement in market interest rates and tenure treasuries and things like that. And they're actually moving lower in yield. So utilities could be a canary or an indicator that, you know, rates may be heading lower. And I would, I would tend to agree with that observation. I, I think that's a, I think that's a very important sort of bigger picture macro observation. And, and it's, it, it, it is a bit, um, to sum up the environment that we're in, you know, the, the two best performing equity sectors year to date are, Energy and utilities. Um, that's interesting. Amazing. Amazing when you think about the last two years. Lee, thanks for bringing up utility stocks for sure. Last question, I'll give it to you, Steve, unless Andrew wants to take it. What do you think of the safety of high-yield business development corporations? These have been popular yield plays as well. Yeah, it's um, that, that, that question probably deserves a much longer answer. Um, I think longer term, yes, it is. It is, is. It should be a component of a broader asset allocation. I would be a bit concerned with the liquidity dynamics 
uh, of that instrument as we head into a period of monetary tightening, as we go into a period of balance sheet roll off, sort of the, the liquidity dynamics I highlighted earlier in the call uh, could introduce um, additional pressure to that to that segment of the bond market, credit market. Any thoughts about that area, Andrew? No, I would say it's the area has grown dramatically um, in, in the last couple of years, and um, these companies often make high high interest loans to LBOs and companies that have gone private who that are smaller than those that companies that access the public junk bond market. So it's been it's been a it's been a very active area. You can often get yields of seven eight percent on on BDCs right now. I mean, part of that reflects leverage. So it, it's an interesting area, and I think it's becoming an interesting alternative to the traditional, you know, junk bond, high yield market. So I think it, it's an area that um, I think investors may want to take a closer look at, and Barron's indeed has been taking a closer look at it. That's for sure. We've also had some business development companies recommended at the annual Barron's Roundtable. So I think we will call it a day here. I want to thank you both. I think I found the two best people in the fixed income business, two best commenters. So I really appreciate it. And we apologize for technical difficulties, but we thank Steve for his extremely graceful reentry to the call. And we also thank our listeners, of course, for tuning in today. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, Barron's Associate Editor for Technology, Eric Savitz, will speak with Anthony Katzer, CEO of IAB Tech Lab on the state of online advertising. Should be interesting. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.